welcome to the Time Shifters podcast. I'm your host, Christopher. This podcast takes a fun look at the films of long past, recent past, and the almost present, as well as the events and news surrounding them. I would love to hear from you, and there are several ways to get in touch with the show. Look for the Time Shifters podcast group on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Time Shifters Pod, or you can send us a typed or recorded message to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and please check us and our fellow podcasters out over on podchaser.com. Please rate and review the show at any of these outlets. All these links can be found on timeshifterspodcast.com. Now let's head to the Timeshifter studio and start the show. Everyone, welcome back to Time Shifters. This is Christopher, and I'm here with Tom. Tom? Time? Time? Time, Tom? Tom, time? Wow. Anyway, how have you been, Tom? Well, Chris, I'm reporting here from the hurricane where uh, the thunder is just uh, crashing uh, really loud, and uh, waves are coming over uh, the surf. Uh, I could be taken away at any moment. (laughs) Yeah. No, seriously. uh, (laughs) We've chosen to record on a colorful night. Yeah, I can hear the thunder occasionally from your end. So, yes, if anyone hears some uh, rumbling in the background, unfortunately, Mother Nature says you can't podcast tonight, but we say, ha, ah, just watch. <laughs> Hopefully the weather doesn't prove too severe and uh, we're able to get this show done. Because we've got a lot to talk about tonight. We're actually going to talk about three films, although the first two I don't think are going to take too much time. We got a hold of a couple screeners, uh, some films that are coming out on demand here. Uh, Actually, the first one we're going to talk about came out on demand uh, April 27th, so over a month ago now. Uh, It's been we've had it in our laps for a while, and we only got around to it. (laughs) This one was called Bad Witch from uh, 2021. Uh, Director directed by Victor Fink and Joshua Land, and it was written by James Hennigan. This one stars Chris Kozlowski, Jackson Trent, and Claire Lefebure, I'll sure. say. She's got the most interesting look at spelling last name I've ever seen. The plot on this one is about Xander, who is a witch whose abuse of black magic has led him to disaster after disaster. After trying to go clean of witchcraft, Xander befriends a young loner and helping this young man with bullies, girlfriends, and other teenage atrocities. And that is, for the most part, from IMDb. I did not write that one myself, but it pretty much sums it up. I was a little surprised that this film was... I was expecting a horror movie. If you look at the poster, the poster would definitely lead you to believe that this is some sort of horror movie. This is not a horror movie. It is not. (laughs) This was pure comedy all the way. Comedy with an odd bent. (laughs) Dark comedy. (laughs) Yeah, but even the darkness was just a little peculiar. Like, it, it saved all the darkness for the end. It, it's it start out where where he is being a he's a witch being hunted. Uh, you're you're like, oh, mm-hmm. that's what this is gonna be about. And he uses it as his, I don't know, like in an intervention. <laughs> he, right. He took this as his <laughs> yeah. opportunity, like. Okay, this isn't working because people are carving stuff in my chest. So 
I'm going to try to change my lifestyle, and I'm going to use my best friend to do it, and I'm going to mooch off of him, and then all of a sudden it becomes a stoner flick. But then we go into the stoner flick part, and we do that, and there, it's a buddy comedy stoner flick driven thing, and then things go wrong and it gets dark. It's genre bending. How about that? All that being said, though, I actually really enjoyed this one. I, and you know what? I'm actually going to join you on that one, too, because the fact that it, I, I have my problems with particularly the way that it ended, the, that, that darker twist where uh, apparently just anybody will murder anybody. Uh, but, but all that aside and that weird kind of ending, um, yeah, I kind of like that it set an expectation and then went in a completely different direction. It's kind of, it's kind of like one of those crazy CW shows if it didn't take itself so seriously. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I I liked the acting. It it suffered from one of these things. It reminded me of almost all these sort of. Um, well, the stoner flicks, the teen comedies where no one looks oh, less yeah. than 25 years old <laughs> and they're all supposed to be in high school. I kept waiting for someone to actually mention that they're in college, that they're talking about, you know, the college right. prom or something like that. But nope, nope. You know, young Roland is definitely in high school. He's trying to get into college. He goes to school with the girl and the girl. Oh, come on. These people are in their 20s. I mean, they're. They're probably pushing yeah, Ro- 30. Ro- Roland's a junior <laughs> I'm not buying CBA it. at the firm. <laughs> he's, right. he's not a high school student. No, no. So I was a little disappointed in that. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You, you got to let that water off a duck's back uh, I mean, comes uh, to that, I guess. The thing that does make this one enjoyable is it just it doesn't take itself seriously. It's not it's not taking its subject all that seriously from the point of view of, uh, and that was what I liked, is, okay, okay, this is a guy that practices witchcraft, and it's just kind of part of his day. He's not on some major quest. He's not um, trying to capture the sword of bejeweled guile, whatever, something. He's not... He's, he's just a dude using this stuff to get his life to move along in some fashion, and, and you find out, yeah, once you dabble in it, um, you kind of can't stop, otherwise it starts doing bad things back to you. I do kind of wish they'd explored that a yeah. little bit more, uh, other than it looked like he, he had a bad toenail. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you, you could have just stub, dropped something on your foot. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> this is the witchcraft thing? Yeah, that seemed like... I, that's I, the I worst. I did that to myself last year. So I mean, <laughs> still a disgusting scene. Don't get me wrong. I felt really uncomfortable watching that. Kudos but, to the effects crew. <laughs> but the whole uh, you can't just stop cold turkey. You can't stop doing witchcraft. Oh, you can't. You just can't. Oh, okay. And right, and they what? did need a little <laughs> bit more development in that area just to make you more comfortable with the notion. Um, and since he's the only mm-hmm. witch that we meet, we don't know what that does historically to anyone else. But the thing I do kind of like about at least what little we know about it is it kind of feeds into that uh, his addictions, which even at him, his addictions are mild. He, he clearly not he, he's clearly not setting the world on fire. He's not a go getter. 
he's not a go-getter in any of the stuff that he does. If he drinks, he just drinks enough to get silly. If he if he smokes, he does smokes enough to screw up a spell. Uh, and his magic is just good enough to get him to a result that's not quite what he wanted. <laughs> so everything about this guy's life is, is like, I'm just getting by. There's another aspect that I wish this film, maybe it'd have to be a different kind of film, would kind of explore where we find out that his best friend knows that he's a witch and he wanted to learn, but Xander wouldn't teach right. him. And then, of course, Xander then takes Roland under his wing and teaches him, which pisses off his best friend. He says, you told me witchcraft couldn't be taught. You know, you like to... And I really wanted some sort of... I didn't teach you because, you know, some sort of... I was trying to protect you or... And I think you could kind of infer because of what his friend does that in the wrong hands, this would be a very dangerous tool. And Xander could see that within his friend and, and kept it from him to, to not create a monster. I, I, I think you can infer that, but it's not, it's not blatant. I kind of wish they could have maybe tiptoed yeah, into that I mean, direction. Like a you bit. and I enjoy it when, when a writer doesn't drag us straight into the content, but I think in this case they shot for way too subtle. Xander would come across eviction notices for his friend, and I think you were supposed to, like you said, you were infer that if I were to give him witchcraft, he would do something that would go too far. But they didn't give you enough. I, I was going to bring... If you hadn't brought it up, I was bringing that up, too, because that... It has a few notes in there where you're just kind of like, I need a little bit more to be satisfied. Yeah, I mean, they have this confrontation about that, and you think it's that's the direction it's going, but no, the next scene is just Xander messing up a spell right. because he smokes some weed <laughs> or something, and like, oh, okay, so we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna go that way, huh? Oh, all right. Well, let's see what you got. This could have been almost episodic because you almost feel like this is now Xander's life as a witch is every time he brings it up to some crescendo and then he has to move on because it's all been messed up and he has to start all over somewhere else. Couldn't you just see this as like, you know, the Incredible Hulk <laughs> type of thing of town to town? <laughs> yeah. Every episode ends with Xander hitchhiking down the road to some piano solo. <laughs> yeah, no, I just that. Yes, exactly. Because I think that's kind of you could almost look at it. At the beginning of the movie, we came in at the end of the last episode because it's all gone wrong. He's been <laughs> yes. attacked by witch hunters. He now has to move on to the next town. <laughs> he moves in with his buddy. He works up, uh, does whatever to his the climax at the end of this movie, and now he's got to move on to the next town. <laughs> it's exactly like that. The story does a few things that I, I like, but then backpedals right away from doing anything mm. significant with him. Uh, uh, Roland creates a spell to get the girl of his dreams to fall for him and then changes his mind and, and, and throws her out, which... You know, then she has no memory of it, and then he confesses to her what he did and everything, and she calls it, oh, and it's okay to put a rape spell on me? And they're like, okay, wow. Yeah, and But then, oh, it's okay. Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, she she forgives him almost immediately. It's not quite that 
abrupt, but it might as well have been. Even the way the initial scene worked out, it felt more like this was something Xander did for Roland so much more than Roland was a participant. At least that's kind of how I was taking it. No, I think Roland did it. No, I, I took it as this was something mm. Roland did. Because uh, he was apologizing for it and didn't mention Xander. He did mention Xander. And, and, and I just kind of took that as it, it, it's his buddy going too far to do what he thought he wanted to to help out his friend. Mm. I, that's kind of how I was taking it. And then when when she doesn't remember anything that 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 need to confess when nothing happened in the end. Mm-hmm. Like, why? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was struggling with the why, why would you turn yourself at You're being chivalrous over nothing. Because <laughs> I, uh, like I said, the, the way I took it is maybe they were trying to do something and it went further than he was expecting, which is why he called it off. Maybe. So, I, I don't know. But yes, uh, either way, that didn't quite play out <laughs> as well. But I, I definitely think this one would be worth a watch as, it, it, as just a fun watch. Don't go in it looking for real witchcraft or for real horror or anything like that. Um, it, it's just a fun watch. I It gets pretty bad ratings on IMDb, but I think so many of the reviews that I'm reading is people thinking that this is going to be a horror comedy. And it's very light on any horror aspects. And it's very strong on the comedy aspects. And like I said, if you go in just by the poster alone or the cover art, that leads you to believe it's going to be something very different than what it actually is. It makes it seem a lot heavier. Like I said, it had a very CW quality about it. It has it's pretty people in silly circumstances with a touch of the occult along for the ride. Another screening we watched. This one actually was uh, completed in 2019, but it's finally getting a kind of a distribution uh, on demand. Uh, this will have come out on May 25th. Uh, this one is Evil Everywhere. It was written and directed by Mikey Moratini. Summer 1985, Eldridge, Illinois. An evil force emerged and began hunting down the senior class in alphabetical order. I say it's finally time we put an end to this thing. Zeke enlisted the help of a mysterious Jane Doe with telekinetic powers. The duo vowed to stop the evil in its tracks by facing the fear head on. They're calling them freak accidents. what you're getting into. A hundred years later, the curse was set to take place. Your graduating class. That mansion has evil everywhere. The plot on this one is, in 1985, an ancient evil began slaughtering the senior class in alphabetical order, but it was stopped. Two years later, the evil has resurfaced, and 20-year-old Jake Davis hunts down Zeke Xanderfelt, a reclusive former classmate who put an end to the evil previously, to find a pattern to take down the evil again. 
along with former high school theater queen Julia, who also practices in the dark arts. The trio band together against the demonic force that is claiming young lives each day. But what they discover might be more complicated than any of them bargained for. This was apparently actually acting as a sequel for another sort of satirical horror film called Para Tutu, Tuto, which was uh, written directed by Mikey Morantini as well. This is definitely a spoof and a comedy. Apparently filmed over the period of nearly two years, on and off again, uh, starting in uh, 2017. And the, the final principal photography didn't finish until 2018, and then some final shots were done in 2019, right before the film's release. So this is a no-budget, get-your-friends-together film. It is all set in the 80s. This one's really got me sort of confused. Got you confused. It, it's not. It's not a good movie. No. But I like a lot about what they did to make this movie. So much effort went into this film that you, I really appreciate the effort, even if I don't in the end enjoy the final product. You're generous. <laughs> <laughs> um. Right. I liken this a lot to, um, I assume that at some point maybe you've seen the movie Super 8. Sure. The kids in the movie Super 8 were in the process of making a movie, of which you get to finally see the final movie at the end of the actual movie. It had a feeling like that without as much professionalism they filmed and they certainly paid homage to a lot of the a lot of like the italian horror there's a lot of uh, someone's an evil dead fan too <laughs> oh yeah absolutely evil dead is in here you know uh nightmare in elm street you could probably find some similarities uh you go back into the like the uh what's his name um dargento or uh you know some of the italian horror uh directors it's all kind of in this film and the fact that they set it in the eighties. And this is what I thought was really impressive is they did a really good job setting it in the eighties and you'd be hard pressed to really find anything blatantly anachronistic in this film. They did a really great job masking the fact that they were filming this thing in 2017, 18 and 19. No, I mean, yes, the locations, the uh, what would be in a scene, the, the, the fashion that was involved. They found a flippin' payphone. <laughs> the payphone. Um, uh, Dark Arts Barbie uh, was... Uh, <laughs> her, her, her attire as she was constantly sitting... That girl, I swear, sat on a chain lick fence in almost every scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, she probably, they probably, she was probably filmed all in like a day. <laughs> they did all her scenes once in one day. Probably, uh, yeah. But no, the, the only thing you had to go on that she was into the dark arts was the fact that she just kept saying she was into the dark arts. Because <laughs> otherwise she looked like she was going to the mall. Yeah. No, they did a great job with the fashion, mm-hmm. the hair, uh, the setting. Uh, they didn't show. There was, they were very careful that you, 
they didn't show any vehicles, no right. cars or any kind of vehicles. And the only time you do see a car, it's like a late 70s, you know, Buick or something like that. Um, late 70s, early 80s. So it, it fit the uh, the time mm-hmm. period. No, I was just really impressed with all that. The only thing, I think there was maybe some piercings and tattoos, which while not unheard of in the 80s, obviously, they weren't as commonplace on just ordinary people, quote-unquote. Right. Like the, the nose ring. You, you would see a nose ring in the 80s, but they they would be on a, a particular type right. of person in the 80s. associate that with somebody that was into punk. Yeah, exactly. And it wouldn't just be the the normal high school girl that gets killed at some point in this film or, you know, and there's like a tattoo or two. That's the only thing. And those are obviously are things that are almost impossible to actually hide. So I don't really ding them for it. I'm just, that's the only things I saw that really jumped out as going, that ah, nope, not really 80s. The way it was filmed was even filmed it very much it felt like something that was filmed in the 80s it felt like it was filmed on an old vhs camcorder and even the, the edits and the uh the scenes the way they were blocked it all just felt like you're watching a low budget 80s horror film i'm, I'm gonna try to give them at least enough credit in that I think part of the goal with this, or at least I'm going to hope that was part of the goal, was for it to look amateurish. Like, it, it, yeah, it was I supposed so. to have an older feel, like, yeah, like you said, this is supposed to be low-budget horrors from the 80s, really rough, plots not thought out, not, um, the whole continuity's not necessarily thought out um so i'm gonna hope and pray that it was in some way supposed to be a spoof or parody of all of that i think a little bit and some of it i think was probably just out of necessity because of how they're they had to film it because they couldn't do it all in a you know two or three weeks they had to kind of do it on weekends over the course of a year or two or three and, and I think they even had uh, the same actors appear as different characters at different points in the film, just as more of a an in-joke than anything. And I'm thinking, well, and probably necessity, because you needed someone to play this part, and it's easier to get somebody that you already have. Right. <laughs> Which, again, uh, is part of what reminded me of that Super 8 film, because one of the kids in from the group um, in their film appeared several times as different characters because they only had like four of them making the whole film right so similar situation so i i I was getting that vibe and i wasn't not liking that vibe it's just considering you've mentioned that uh granted with a proposed budget of fifteen hundred dollars to make this film <laughs> and made over the course of three years and it only comes to barely over an hour i don't know uh, i granted the 1500 that makes sense but you know the, uh, three years in your part-time I, you couldn't eke out a full 90 minutes <laughs> no i i did i didn't mind it i was actually i liked that it kind of had a short run time myself well, lord knows i liked that it had a short I found myself watching the film and the whole time not 
really liking it, but really wishing I did. <laughs> <laughs> if that makes sense. I I would recommend this for any really big horror fans. I think they might get more out of it than I do. They I think they would get a little bit more of the uh, the homages and the pastiches than than I do. Sure. Yeah. Even I mean I, I I definitely get the idea that I'm supposed to be getting something here. I'm supposed to be understanding something here, and I think someone that's a little bit more uh, into the horror films, I think, would find and maybe get a little bit more out of this, and they might appreciate it. I don't know if they would like it either, but maybe they would appreciate certainly like I do the effort that went into it. I think you're on to something there because, like, I, I, as I, you pointed out, I pointed out, it, clearly a fan of the Evil Dead. There are more than a few, not only the lines from when they're reading from the text and and they're pulling out Nikto, Barato, and all that. I'm like, you're going to mess this up just a few syllables so Sam Raimi won't sue you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they they have that. There's some camera treatment uh, where, um, like in Evil Dead, whenever the evil was coming after you, the camera would move wildly and jaggedly toward you like it was racing through the woods at you, but you'd never get a sense of a figure or a body. And they did stuff like that in this film. So there's a probably more than a half dozen other things where they're all allusions to other horror properties from probably the late seventies, early eighties. This is a kind of one of those films where you watch the movie and okay. Yeah. The movie's okay, whatever. But I kind of really want to meet the person behind it because he just seems like that'd be, we, we would have a ball. Let's, (laughs) let's get together and talk and watch movies. (laughs) one of your favorites and friends that make film. This reminds me of a Henrik. Yeah. Yeah. Henrik Kudo, you should definitely watch this movie. I think you would appreciate this. I think you could see what they were going for in this and, and certainly appreciate what one can do with no budget and no time and probably just a group of friends that are helping you out. Exactly. Like like I said, this is a fantastic example of a no-budget horror movie. Well, I think we'll leave these two behind. We'll, we'll leave the fake 80s behind, and we'll go and visit a film that actually took place in the 80s. So we'll take a break. We'll listen to a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we'll talk about The Day After. I'm James. And we're the hosts of your new favorite podcast, The Test of Time. On our show, we talk about our favorite movies from the past, mostly from the 80s and 90s. There's Forrest Gump, which I hate. Weekend at Bernie's, which I hate. And plenty of movies we both love, but still love to talk about, like Risky Business, Swingers, E.T., Big, and more. We talk about the movies and debate if they still hold up today. In other words, do they stand the test of time? So check us out. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and all the usual podcast places. Check out our website, testoftimepod.com, for a full list. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Test of Time Pod. 
It's test of time to subscribe. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. It's the test of time. James and Allen have to say, do the movies you love still hold up today? One by nine. Current world intelligence situation, and you might pay particular note to the nuclear submarines off the east and west coast. Having already captured NATO advanced positions. Hey, any of you guys hear anything about an alert? I really don't think either side wants to be the first to use a nuclear device. It's not a question of who, but where. East Germany sealed off the borders to West Berlin. It's not gonna happen. People are crazy, but not that crazy. I don't believe this is happening. We have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time. ICBMs. Over 300 missiles inbound now. Either we fired first, and they're gonna try to hit what's left. They fired first, and we just got our missiles out of the ground in time. This is not an exercise. One millisecond takes you beyond imagining, beyond tomorrow, and into the day after. The Day After from 1983 it was directed by Nicholas Meyer and written by Edward Hume. And this film follows the lives of several persons and families in the days leading up to and following a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. The film starred the biggest, really at the time, the biggest star in this film was Jason Robarbs. Uh, the other stars include Joe Beth Williams, Steve Gutenberg, an appearance by John Lithgow and B.B. Besh. Uh, most of these actors were kind of names uh, up and coming. Steve Gutenberg was still, although he had done several films, was not exactly a household name. It would be uh, the 1984, I believe, when he does uh, Police Academy. Mm. His star was on the rise, as they say, when he did when he appeared in this. Even John Lithgow, I don't think, was really terribly well known at this point. I don't think you really saw much of him until he started doing something. Wasn't he in like Third Rock from the that, Sun? Yeah, that was his long-running uh, sitcom that you knew. But I mean, uh, he right? Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, he's well. obviously did plenty of other things. But BB Besh, um, I only know her from Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, mm-hmm. which was also directed by Nicholas Meyer. So they they both left Star Trek II and went directly to the day after. Quite the leap. I uh, I did like. Uh, catching Stephen first in a minor character and minor role here of course as a flounder in animal house and veer in babylon 5 as as well as uh, other other roles this originally aired november 20th 1983 on the abc television network the program uh, see it was one of the most watched non-sporting event television broadcasts of all time with an estimated 100 million people and over 39 million homes watching it on its initial release and with a 46 rating and a 62% share of the viewing audience, it was the seventh highest rated non-sport show up to that time and set a record as the highest rated television film in history. 
I don't know if that's been broken. I was trying to do a little research before we sat down, and I, every time you try to Google most watched anything, even if you tell it not sporting events, all it does is tell you about the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was cool. Uh, President Ronald Reagan actually watched this film uh, several months before it uh, actually aired. And he actually, in his memoirs, actually did say that there's a direct line between this film and the work that he did with Mikhail Gorbachev to uh, start scaling down the nuclear arsenal. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. This film actually played a role <laughs> in the fact, in possibly the survival of, of the Earth, <laughs> or of, of the human race anyway. Well, in which case, job well done, because, uh, yeah, while we were researching some of this, I came across um, a news article in the New York Times that was dated for the day that it was supposed to air, November 20th of 1983. Mm -hmm. And the thrust of this was whether or not um, this movie was intended as a rallying cry. I find that so interesting that someone would take that from this film yeah and they were really trying to look at it from um both points of view because uh, abc apparently at the time was trying to push that the that this movie was not intended to make a political estate statement and and watching it again th this late i i don't know that it was trying to take a one side versus another slant on anything in particular um I think he very effectively said nuclear war bad, no matter who starts it. In fact, it get brought up in the article that uh, at, they go out of their way in the movie to not pick who fired first. Exactly. Yeah, they that was uh, I believe that was very intentional by the filmmakers, including uh, Nicholas Meyer, that it was supposed to be very ambivalent or not ambivalent. It was supposed to be Ambitious. very um, they they. And ambiguous about who who pushed the button first. Right, because the point of view that the, the, the movie is trying to take is it doesn't matter. They even say as right. much. Now, I do remember this when it aired in 83. I do remember watching... I don't know if I remember watching all of it. I definitely remembered some of it. I, there are certain scenes that definitely uh, stuck in my brain. Like many other people, I think everyone I knew was watching this thing. I was a little disappointed that I, we didn't get a lot of real comments or anything on our social medias um, about uh, about watching this. It's just other people that commented that they remember right. watching it, and a few people just the generic like, "Oh yeah, that scared the crap out of me." Okay, well, I guess thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. <laughs> I, I remember having watched this when when it was out and. And I remember it kind of affecting me in a way like, like it wasn't something that said, watch me again. No, no, uh, because it's not that kind of film. It, it's it's um, and I, I'm going to take this opportunity. It's not a good film. Like if you just rate it based off of storytelling and good dialogue, good acting, any of those things, it doesn't have it. That, but I don't think that's what it's supposed to be. This is supposed to be a slice of Americana uh, that is then 
crumbled up, thrown away because we've destroyed the world. May take a little umbrage to that, honestly. I disagree to some extent. I think this is very well acted. I think this is actually a decent film. Maybe some of the things that you're picking up as being not great acting or whatever, to me, just as like more realistic portrayals of people. Well, maybe I'm not so much uh, being fair about the acting, but uh, but I mean, the story. There, there's no story because I, I, there, there's not there's not necessarily well, there's definitely an end, uh, but. <laughs> It's not about a beginning and a middle. Uh, we're, we're not working toward any one thing other than the point that we want to make, which is don't do this. Um, because that is the entire thrust of this thing is these are people going about their normal lives. Um, they were very key. And one of the things that is effective for the movie is um, you have to pay attention to it while it's while you're watching it is each of the groups of characters they're given a miles away from what will be the the blast that's going to impact most of them um so kansas city being zero uh ground zero for the blast um everyone else is listed at a certain mile marker away from that so that you get the distinct impression of when something like this goes off, how that will impact those people. I, I, again, maybe I'm not being fair on the acting. They, I think everybody was effective at uh, conveying the character that they were supposed to be. But again, they're, they're just people moving through their lives. We're not trying to tell a specific story. And I think that's one of the strengths of this film is that it takes a point of view that I don't know that we've seen, we definitely didn't see prior, and I don't know that we've seen since. Almost every time you ever see a end-of-the-world type film, you're following scientists. You're mm-hmm. following military. You're following some hero that's going to swoop in at the last minute and save humanity or something like that. We never follow you and me. Right. We never follow our neighbors. Uh, and we never... Another thing we, we never see, we've seen nuclear war movies and we've seen the missiles launch, but we always see, you know, the, 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 the trails through the sky. We see the, the silo doors fly open and the missiles, you know, shoot out. We've seen all that before, but what we don't see is the fact that there's people that live just miles away from right. these silos and they're in their town going about their day and suddenly these missiles launch. And what that must be like. I mean, what goes through your head? You're going to the grocery store to buy vegetables for dinner. And now you and you look up in the sky and you realize there's not going to be dinner. Right. And, and, and actually, that's one of the things that's kind of haunting at the beginning. And one of the things I really enjoyed, I had forgotten that they had done that. The movie kicks off with a thank you to the people of Kansas. Uh, Mm -hmm. because Lawrence, Kansas, to be exact. Right. So uh, to your point, uh, in most apocalyptic movies, um, you're taking it from the perspective of the places that are popular, the New York cities, the L.A.'s, the uh, the 
those kind of areas, big urban with lots of things going on, it's not usually focused on the everyday middle America where, as they've pointed out, this is where the action will actually come out of. A rocket isn't launching out of midtown Manhattan. It, it's launching out of a, a out of a cornfield in the middle of nowhere. Um, I, actually, I've actually gotten the chance to tour one of those silos once. So, um, and they're a haunting place unto themselves. Another thing that the film does is, like you were saying, the first most of the first half of this film is just following these people in their day-to-day lives. Uh, there's, there's a wedding being planned. Um, there's, um, you know, a, a, a doctor and his wife, his daughter's moving out. She's going to go off to go to college somewhere else or something like that. It's just ordinary mm-hmm. stuff. And in the background, you hear news stories about some escalating military um, activity by by Russia or uh, in Germany. Yeah, this is po- this and is post the or pre the wall falling. Exactly. This yeah. This is this is pre this. Is, we still have an East and West Germany. Um, we still have a very you know strong Soviet Union. This is knee deep in the Cold War of the 1980s. And so all that is kind of on the peripheral. This is all just ordinary people mm-hmm. stuff through through the first half of this film, and then. Through that hour, those news and the news that you hear on the television and radio becomes more and more prevalent. In the beginning, it's just it's on the car radio and someone clicks it off. And then it becomes a little bit now. Now your characters going about their day to day lives start paying attention to it. You know, they start actually watching the news and they start actually discussing it and going, it's saying the same thing that we would probably say. Do you think they'd really do it? No, come on. No one's that crazy. What's going on? They say the Russians just invaded West Germany. Having already captured NATO advanced positions along the West German border, the looming question is, how far will Warsaw Pact forces go? Will the Russians advance straight for the Rhine and defy NATO's declared policy of defense by all means, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons? The Defense Department today reported... Fantasyland. You think they're making this up? You think this is war of the worlds or something? Look, did we help the Czechs, the Hungarians, the Afghans, or the Poles? Well, we're not going to nuke the Russians to save the Germans. I mean, if you were talking oil in Saudi Arabia, then I'd be real worried. What do you think? I gotta get a haircut. You know, I think I'm gonna hitch home, see my folks, and I'll see what's happening on Monday. And then, of course, it does happen. The unthinkable happens in about the halfway mark. Maybe I lost my point. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it does lead up to another, what I think was an incredibly effective moment, is... That brief, the war is brief. What you actually see of the war, just as it would be, I think, in real life, is extremely brief. It is like literally just a few minutes. Yeah, and, and actually, one of the act, uh, one of the characters, literally says that after all, I, I mean, they're not even a full day after this has happened. So, someone is like, actually, the the bomb hadn't even gone off yet. 
it was the it was the army guys at the uh, silo. You in communications with the capsule down there? Just down there in the lodge. Even the radio went out. Radio's out. Last thing oh, I heard was they knocked out two of our radar warning stations. Where? Oh, no. Beale no, Air Force Base, California, it. somewhere in England. Can you believe it? <laughs> they really going and done it. They shacked them. They pushed all the buttons. You know what that means, don't you? Either we fired first and they're going to try to hit what's left, or they fired first and we just got our missiles out of the ground in time. Either way, we're going to get hit. So what are we still standing around here for? Where do you want to go? Well, how about out of here for starters? I got to get my wife and my kid. Oh, we're still on alert, Billy. No one leaves this facility. Oh, come Not on, until man. The are you kidding? you kidding me, man? The bombs will be here before the choppers, Will. Listen. Damn. Listen to me, man. The war is over. It's over. We've done our job. So what are you still guarding? Huh? Some cotton-picking hole in the ground, all dressed up and nowhere to go? He's right. Oh, Lord, Lord. And one of them clearly states, the war is already over. Nothing has landed yet, but the war is already over because he knows full well the fact that we let him go. Mm -hmm. That was it. Really love that scene. That is a really great scene between those men. For those that have actually fully wrapped their head around what has just happened, they're like, we're not in the army anymore. I mean, that's the, the crux of what they're saying. Civilization is done. We... You just saw it go. There it goes. Bye. Uh, yeah, we're we're done here. Uh, it, it we need to go carry on with whatever's going to happen over the next several hours to days because we aren't going to be here much longer. <laughs> but I do love when the bombs start falling. It's a very quick, maybe only two minutes, and it's just quick and quick edits and quick cuts of you know the bombs going off quick flashes you see people kind of being vaporized you see you know the obligatory stock yes, footage yeah. of the atom bomb <laughs> yeah. tests yeah you can't help but uh at this day and age yeah like yeah seen that seen that seen that <laughs> yes yes but it is it is all done very fast and you know then the screen goes black you know probably to commercial break and when it comes back the war is over that's it it, it, everything's just rubble and ash. And if I remember correctly, that is actually where they cut to commercial because this being a made-for-TV movie and knowing where those edit points would be, that's the one you mm-hmm. leave your audience with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I read, too, that the last half of the film was actually uh, shown commercial-free. If it wasn't, I don't doubt it. I, I mean, I, I mean, that... <laughs> That would be the point. This is the moment that we need you to linger on. Because nothing about what's about to happen is good. There's a lots of little uh, scenes in this that I, I just I thought was done really well. I like, um, you know, the missiles have gone off. The one, uh, the one family, uh, I think, what, the, the Oakses, um, the farmer, the, you know, they were planning their daughter's wedding. And he realizes something might go down, so he's got them all going to the cellar and he's kind of making a, a bunker with water and he tries to bring his wife down and play by B.B. Besh and she's making the bed. It's like, just forget that. And she, she refuses to let it go and he eventually has to grab her and carry her down and she goes down screaming and she finally breaks down. And it's like, that's powerful. How do you do that in just a few seconds and go, you know, that really kind of takes your breath away. And, and, of course, the farmer was played by John Cullum, and uh, 
he's a magnificent character actor. I, I, I thought he was perfect for the role of that that head of household, that farmer. And actually, um, one of the scenes that gripped me quite a bit. Now, granted, I know what's going to happen in this. I've seen this one before. It's a histor- this, this movie is a historic fact. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it sits prominent. Um, so watching this, you get a premonition moment. Um, that comes from John Cullum's character uh, when his daughter has clearly run out with her fiance and all night and she returns and he's he's doing the normal father bickering thing where have you been why have you been out what, what are you up to as long as you're under and, my and roof literally yeah. and he stops himself in the middle of saying as long as you're under my roof and then after the 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 younger daughter kind of clears the air for that because she's busy being a busybody, um, and she leaves the area because he's been watching the news that he's watching, and he is already in prepare mode. He, you can see in him that he chooses that moment to not linger on the the absurd, the the inconsequential. He's not going to pick the normal daddy-daughter fight at this point because it just doesn't matter. He needs to focus on what's really important. And that that was one of those scenes that did work really well, I thought. Yeah, no, I agree with you in all points, Ari. I think he was definitely uh, one of the stronger uh, actors in this. And yeah, I have seen him in other things as well. And he, You're right, he's a fantastic character mm-hmm. actor. Steve Gutenberg was Steve Gutenberg. I, I've never found him to be a competent actor if I can no, say that, but in this he fit. He does. I think he fit fine because, like I was saying it wasn't before, clear who he was it's, really. He he was just a college student. Sure, he he was trying but... trying to head home. Yeah, and then he gets he gets pulled in and and, and meets the Oaks family mm-hmm. and and stuff. But yeah, he's just you know he's the goofball kind of college student. Um, you kind of get the impression he's one of those people that if there's a hundred people, he's person fifty. You know, he's right there in the middle of, of everything. He's right. just a normal, not special, but not not special. <laughs> you know, he's right. just the schlub. You know, he, he um, he's the approachable guy, but the everyman. Yeah, yeah, and so you're right. I think he he fits the part absolutely, and he does have some good moments. Uh, Definitely when he's trying to help and, and take care of the Oaks's daughter and the son who's been blinded by the, you know, he's got flash blindness. He does have some great moments with them, especially towards the very end um, between him and, and, and the woman, I thought was really good. And who kudos to the makeup job on this film, too. Oh, yes. No, uh, I, actually, the one article that I was reading, um, they said uh, uh, the real star of this was, was the makeup artist. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. That that crew worked hard. <laughs> and they did a really great job considering that you, you've got people suffering from radiation poisoning. And, you know, it doesn't happen instantly. And so you were following over the course of several days. And so every time you see them, they look a little worse than they did before. And they did a really great job showing that progression. Yes. Um, particularly with um, uh, Jason Robarb's uh character you know he's a doctor that not only is he suffering from radiation sickness 
he's suffering from exhaustion because he's in a hospital trying to take care of these people as best he can. You know, he hasn't slept in 36 hours but when he finally passes out <laughs> and sleeps for who knows how long. Uh, long enough for one of the to find out one of the nurses have passed away while he was, you know, unconscious. Right. Uh, yeah, they did a fantastic job with him. And he was really good. Jason Warbrubs actually did a really great job on this, too, because he looked and acted like the man who was just, he was completely, I almost said defeated. And I think that, you know, he never truly was defeated. Not spoilers for a film that's, you know, <laughs> 1983. Not until the very, very end does he, could you say that he was defeated? But he was, he was comp- beaten, but not defeated. Let me let's put it that way. Well, and the moment that you're talking about is the moment the film wanted to make the point beyond nuclear war bad. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> a little part of me couldn't help but giggle and, and hear the whopper repeat. The only way to win is not to play. Yes. Uh, from from War Games. <laughs> yes. The point I think the film was really trying to make um, when Robards is in the... Uh, he, he's gone back to Kansas City. He wants to at least... He's dying. He knows he's dying. He needs to at least witness home. He knows his wife is gone. Um, but he's just got to kind of be there. So he goes there, and I assume the pile of uh, the the way they shot the scene, the pile of rubble that he ends up in is uh, is supposed to be his home. And then there's a family that's hunkered down in the rubble, and they're just trying to do the best they can where they are. It's amazing that they're alive at all at where they're at anyway. Um, and he is he is having that moment uh, that we're having to let go at this point it's he's trying to cling to what he perceives as his this is mine get out of my house you're in my house get out of my house and instead of it turning more confrontational the the father of that family takes the time no word is spoken by that man and he just goes over and hugs um robard's character and that's the point that it was trying to make is we need to get over ourselves. Stuff is transient. We're, we don't necessarily own anything but the life we come in with. And if we're not going to be there for each other, there's no point in this. <laughs> so I got all of that out of that one moment. And again, th- this is a movie of moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. You, you couldn't actually go through and list them all. You'd, you'd be here all night. Exactly. But there are many, many fantastic moments in here. We've only mentioned a few. And there are many where I sit and watch this. And like I was saying before, there are moments that do, for me anyway, actually kind of take my breath away. I, I find them to be extremely powerful and, and, and well-done moments. It doesn't surprise me at all that this was the, uh, the event that it was mm-hmm. in 83 and I'm actually surprised maybe not surprised I was gonna say I was surprised that it didn't air more often after that but I, I don't know if people 
would want to watch this <laughs> often. Uh, I'm, I know I have not watched this since 1983. No, neither have I. And and I've now that I've watched it, other than if for some reason I need to, to review it again, I don't know if I'm going to watch it again. Um, it is a very powerful piece of cinema for a television movie. No, it is. Um, and I feel like it's something that people should watch, but I'd be oh, curious. Yes. This is a time and place film because in 1983, when that was aired, there was absolutely nothing to stop that from being the exact thing that happened. Yes. Uh, um, and if you didn't live in 1983, um, I don't know that you knew that. Sorry, millennials, but <laughs> if for those of you that li have lived in this time, you might have felt some of the stuff that happens now, but you've never felt that full threat of apo the apocalypse, the actual end of the world. Um, right. And being that close to it being a reality. Well, I do wonder if we've found ourselves in a little bit of a, of a complacency. So I wonder... We certainly have uh, North Korea to contend with still at the moment. Whether they're truly as serious a threat as the Soviet Union was in the 80s, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I definitely think that they are a threat, but whether they're a threat to the world like this one, uh, like what we lived through in the 80s, I, I don't know. I mean, they made a good point, too, of also mentioning um, the last time the world kind of sat on the precipice uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Uh, Jason Robarbs and his wife had the discussion talking about, do you, you remember when we, we sat and, you know, watching uh, Kennedy and, you know, on the news and and expecting expecting the bombs to drop and of course they didn't there's at least two times in um in the last you know 50 years that this world could have crossed that line mm -hmm. um yeah the fingers have been on the button more times than we really care to <laughs> care to think right um so yes i i hope that in today's world we've moved beyond that, that we aren't, you know, in any kind of a cold war where the, we don't have our fingers hovering over the button. You have to be hopeful, I think, because I don't want anyone else to have to live their lives like we did. Just, we kind of had to just ignore the fact that that could happen. That's the life we live. We, I, the, I don't want to make it sound a little too melodramatic. You and I had the benefit in 1983 of being children. I yes, mean, young and stupid. Yes, young and stupid. Uh, we don't have that that higher level view of the world, so we see this and we're we're terrified that that could be a thing. And 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 that was part of the point of it too was to okay scare the crap out of the uh, the people who are growing up now, so they don't go there either. Um, right. While you're trying to wake up those that. Uh, that literally do control the button at the moment. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it, it is inspiring to know that maybe this actually did have an actual geopolitical impact. 
Um, yes. <laughs> that's amazing, because I'm certain that's what he was shooting for when he made it. Um, and it's nice to see that maybe he got it. Don't know where I'm going. <laughs> What's my point? <laughs> well, I I think it I think it kind of uh, backs up onto your point that you do think people should see this film. Yes. Um, I I feel like this is kind of one of these things that this should should almost be like required viewing while in high school or something. Part of what are where I was going with some of this is you mentioned the whole okay well, we haven't watched it since 1983 and. I don't think it would have been effective to, to make this like the the ABC movie of the year. We just run this like we run Wizard of Oz. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we're going to show it once a year, whether you like it or not. Uh, no, I don't. Right. Uh, th- this this had its moment in time. You watched it then, and it had the impact that it was intended to have. So now it's almost uh, something you watch as a case study. Uh, um this is what you can do with cinema, um, even yes. on television. I think we're kind of nearing the end of our discussion, and, but I do want to mention the end of this film, and you're talking about brilliant cinema. The end of this film is a moment and a scene that can be taken as a sign of hope or a sign of despair simultaneously. Expand. When the, the end of the movie, we were, we've been following a woman who is two weeks overdue giving birth. Oh, yes. At the hospital. And at the end of the film, she is finally given birth. And so the, the, the closing sound of this film, when the screen goes black, is the sound of the baby crying. It's all, also John Lithgow asking if anybody is out there. But that scene with the baby. Yes. So you, you could take that as, oh, there's still hope because there's life. Or I find that also as a moment of almost despair because what life has she brought this child into? You know, what's the life expectancy of this child? I, it's just, it's both incredibly sad and hopeful. It, you get all kinds of emotions in that scene all at the same time to the point where you, you really you don't really know what to do with it. Yeah, and without having gone back and um, looked into what the, the writer and director's intentions were, I, I, I would hope the answer would be, that's for you to decide. I, I think that has to be your interpretation um, and you're going to know who you are by which way you lean. I'm the optimist. Uh, I, I'm taking from that the only way the world carries on is if life carries on. So mm-hmm. um, I'm already even thinking in the notion of, okay, in an apocalyptic world, the only way to get past it is to keep breeding yourself out of it. So, um, so yeah, bringing life into the world is the only way to perpetuate life. It also brings up, uh, they, they, they had, uh, what was it, uh, the quote from Einstein. Um, yes. yes yeah. the, um, I don't know how World War Three will be fought, but I know how World War Four will be fought. That's with sticks and stones. Insanely powerful film. In, in many ways, still relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely worth watching if you get a chance. If you've not seen this film, or if it's been... 50 years, you know, 
since you or 50 not quite 50 years <laughs> please don't make us quite that yeah. old <laughs> 40 years is it 48 then no right. <laughs> uh yeah no it, uh it'll be 40 years soon 38 <laughs> yeah if it's been nearly 40 years since you've seen this film i i definitely think you ought to go ahead and give it a rewatch because i think um especially if you watched it as a child mm-hmm. uh you will actually get more out of it now as far as um it might have scared you as a child you watch it now you'll appreciate it more for the actual cinema uh cinematic event sort that that it was or that it is the funny thing is as i'm thinking about this um knowing what i watched knowing the level of effects that were in it and all that my son is about the age now that I was when I saw it. I don't know how comfortable I am showing it to him. It's a very intense. It's yeah, a very it's, intense film. Yeah, it's a, it's a little hard to, to take. It, it, and, well, uh, me knowing him, and he is, tends to be on the sensitive side, I don't know that <laughs> I can right. put him in yeah. front of this and see, but... I almost kind of want to. I, I, right. I want to get how that makes him feel because I know how it made me sure. feel. Right. Yeah, it'd be, it's interesting. It'd be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And the I should just go ahead and, and say this too. You know, the end of the film, there's a, a, a text scroll that says that he, had, and this was, I think, insistent on uh, by uh, Nicholas Meyer that this be put it in put in there, that the events depicted are kind of a, um, a sugar-coated version yes. that the actual uh, an actual war would be even worse than what was depicted in this film. So keep that in mind. <laughs> there were there was human life in, in the end of his. Uh, I don't think there'd be quite that much. Uh, it, g- no. Not given the dead. Uh, not given the parameters that he set and how many bombs he had go off. Kansas would have been glass. <laughs> so yeah, so that's going to do it for the day after. That was a, that was a really interesting and, and fun watch. Um, yeah. I, fun is a weird word to use, but I think you understand my meaning. Yes. So in two weeks, though, we are going back to having something a, a little bit more fun, <laughs> as it's going to be another MST3K Unrift episode. We're going to look at the, was it, what did I say it was? 1967's yes. Operation Kid Brother, also called OK Connery. This is the sort of spoof a film of uh, James Bond movies that starred Sean Connery's younger brother, Neil. Uh, Neil Connery actually just recently uh, passed away, which is one of the reasons we decided to do this. And the fact that I noticed that the film actually just recently became available on Amazon Prime. so <laughs> Serendipity. Yeah, Serendipity just said we were going to do this film. And I am a bit curious because we've seen how MST has edited some films. We saw how they kind of trimmed and, and cut out bits of like Danger Death Ray mm-hmm. um, to make it a little bit more nonsensical. And... Uh, so I'm curious to watch this film and maybe being hopeful that this could have been like a proto-Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> I 
maybe maybe it won't be quite that much maybe it might be a um oh what was those great films with the what's his name james coburn um our man flint okay yeah yeah maybe along those lines maybe yeah i'm kind of excited to see uh especially as we continue down the unrift uh thing um as we've pointed out, Mystery Science Theater being a little uh, liberal with its cutting <laughs> yes. uh, can sometimes take away some of the things that at least make it a, a little more valid <laughs> yeah. as cinema. And, and, and watchable, yes. Yeah, oh, and, and managed to sometimes find takes that probably weren't originally intended to be in there. Um, yes, uh, I'm focusing heavily on that danger death ray where the the, the, the hand drops the watch in the water. Yeah, the yeah. End, and it's not in the actual cut of the film. So right. Um, yeah. So yeah, this could be fun to to see what uh, what happens here. <laughs> yeah, it should be good. And uh, right now it's scheduled. The fates always have a way of um, doing what they will. But I think we will have a guest. I won't go any further than that. Not till uh, we actually have I, him online. Exactly. Uh, so I won't go into any any details. But so hopefully there'll be a third party in here to get a, a take on it. And so I, I guarantee you this will be a first time unrift watch for all three of us. Though I do know that. So that should be a lot of fun. That's awesome. All right. So that's going to do it for this episode. I want to thank everybody for listening. If you have any thoughts or or anything or any comments on what we've said here today about the day after or any of the other films, please uh, send us a message or uh, contact us via any of the socials. Uh, we'd be happy to hear from you. Until we uh, talk to you again, bye. See ya. Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Is anybody there? This is Lawrence. This is Lawrence, Kansas. Is anybody there? Hello? Is anybody there? Anybody at all?